I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome to the POMEP's Middle East political science podcast. This week's episode features a book discussion with Rafaela Del Sarto, author of the new book, Borderlands, Europe and the Mediterranean Middle East. We also talked to Lucia Ardovini, who is the author of a new article, Rethinking the Tanzim, tensions between individual identities and organizational structures in the Muslim Brotherhood after 2013. That's part of a special issue on the Muslim Brotherhood. Finally, we talked to Toby Dodge, London School of Economics, uh, about the upcoming Iraqi election and the challenges facing the Iraqi state. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Rafaela Del Sarto, Johns Hopkins SAIS Europe, and the author of the new book, Borderlands, Europe and the Mediterranean Middle East, just published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Rafaela, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this is a, a really interesting book. Can you tell us a little bit about it and um, you know what the major contribution of it is in your view? Mm-hmm. So the book examines relations between Europe. And when I talk about Europe, I mean the European Union and its member states and what I call the Mediterranean Middle East. Um, again, that's um, the countries in the Middle East that are bordering, let's say, the European Union and North Africa in uh, over a period of 20 years between 1995 and 2015 um, through a perhaps a bit provocative prism um, because I uh, look at these relations through um, what I call a borderlands perspective that basically uh, looks at the European Union as a sort of an empire that is constantly expanding its um, borders which are disaggregated to begin with and the southern, the so-called southern neighborhood of the Europeans, which is, which are the Mediterranean, Middle East, and North Africa. And the book in particular focused on trade relations and the cooperation on migration, security, and border controls, because these are the two most important aspects of, of these relations, basically. So there's a lot to unpack here, but I think a good place to start is with this concept of borderlands and and you have a very sophisticated view of what we mean by a border. So maybe you could talk us through that a little bit and how you understand uh, this concept of a border in relation between the EU and uh, Mm -hmm. the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So I basically think about the European Union as a sort of an empire, a very specific um, type of an empire. Um, First of all, because the European Union uh, or the European polity, let's say, um, has multiple and disaggregated internal and external borders, particularly if we're thinking about functional borders. Mm -hmm. Um, It is also um, because Europe has constantly been seeking to expand these rules and practices to neighboring areas, to neighboring states. And it has also been trying constantly to outsource um, border control duties to neighboring states. That um, includes both um, the Middle East, the Mediterranean Middle East and North Africa, but also Eastern Europe. But I'm not dealing with Eastern Europe in the book, right? Um, And also because basically, if you're thinking about the European Union as a sort of an empire, um, it's very clear that what is the most important uh, interest of the Europeans is stability in neighboring areas. So in a sort of borderlands, right? Um, And so we can think about the Mediterranean Middle East and North Africa as Europe's southern borderlands, which somehow um, act as a sort of a buffer zone in some some respects, if we're thinking about 
migration, for example, and which are also constantly being co-opted in the management, particularly the elites in, in North Africa and the Middle East, are constantly being co-opted in the management of these, of these borderlands. So the idea is here is basically to um, not consider the relationship between uh, Europe and uh, the MENA region as two completely separated areas, right? Um, it, is not a only, it is not about Fortress Europe, which is a concept that has been um, rather, has become rather important in the context of Europe's restrictive migration policies, but it is actually about something that is much more fluid and much more ambiguous, mm -hmm. because in some respects, countries in North Africa and the Middle East have become part of the, part of the European order, and at the same time, they're still not part of the, of the European uh, polity, obviously. So this idea of functional borders is really important for what you're doing here. Let's talk about that a little bit. And why, why do you describe these functional borders as, as fuzzy and selectively applied? Well, first of all, I mean, of course, the European Union itself has many um, very different overlapping multiple borders. If we're thinking about the Schengen area, we can think about who belongs to the euro, uh, we can think about in, in these terms, who's part of the internal market. There are countries that are not European Union members that are part of the internal market, for example. And then it basically also um, applies to all kinds of programs and projects that were initially meant to apply uh, to European Union, uh, Union members, to the member states, which have been exported. So let's say Israel participates in the European research and development program since 1996, for example, or Morocco is, is part of the European Open Sky Initiative. Uh, Jordan is as well. For example, these are the kind of functional borders where you can really think about specific rules and practices that are originally uh, meant for the European member states, for the member states of the European Union, in which countries from North Africa and the Middle East are selectively integrated. And the same goes if we're thinking about the internal market of the European Union. Here again, there are trade agreements in place between the European Union and almost all the countries of North Africa and the Middle East. And when I'm talking about the countries of North Africa and the Middle East, as I said before, I'm, lim I'm limiting uh, myself to the Mediterranean Middle East. I'm not dealing with the Gulf countries, right? Um, so there are um, trade agreements in place uh, between the European Union and almost all these countries, which um, allow these countries to take part in specific aspects of the EU's internal market. And this is not only about trade. I mean, trade is the main issue here, but it may also be programs on, I don't know, on good governance. It may cover um, energy policy, environmental policies, statistics, um, and there is a plethora of issues in which these states participate in European Union programs, right? And then there's also the other aspect that has to do with, let's say, the hard borders for um, unwanted migrants and refugees. And what we have seen here is that the borders have actually the European Union, the, the Euro European Union's external borders, they have actually multiplied and they have also moved because it is not that these controls are uh, conducted at the borders, let's say, of Italy, right? right. But for example, in, in the context of thinking about Libya, which is very close to, to Italy, of course, there are joint patrols between Italy and Libya off the Libyan coast, right? 
or you have a French, um, you have French border patrol officers patrolling airports in Morocco, let's say. So there's, it's, a, it's a very different way of looking actually of, um, at, at this relationship by looking at this multiplicity and, and this disaggregated function of borders. And a, a key part of that is uh, something you mentioned a moment ago, this idea of the externalization of rules and practices of trying to make these countries like the EU um, in order to facilitate trade or, or the like. So let's talk about that then in terms of uh, what, how you think about the EU as, a, as an empire. So again, it is basically about, first of all, if we're thinking about the interests of the Europeans, these are security and economic interests. And for these, the stability of the neighborhood, or we can say the periphery, or we can say the borderlands, right, um, is key. Um, so there is a constant attempt to export uh, specific rules and practices that pertain to the EU's internal market to this area. How does this work? Well, there are free trade agreements uh, covering industrial goods. Agriculture is usually excluded. Um, there are training programs for officials in many states on how to implement these agreements. And these this agreements, the way that the relations have to be conducted in the economic sphere, they are, they are according to EU rules, right? So this is one aspect of that. Then there is the other aspect, um, if we're talking about migration control, border control, counterterrorism cooperation, here it has basically been about co-opting the governments of the states in North Africa and in the Middle East in doing, let's say, the dirty work, right, of blocking unwanted migration to, to Europe. Um, uh, never mind that many of these countries have a, a scandalous human rights record, and um, that is somehow accepted by and large um, in Europe. And here, of course, I should also say that as regards migration, um, cooperation on security, counterterrorism, border controls, the role of the member states is much more important, the single European states, because it, that has um, to a large part remained the competence of the member states. Huh? Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the historical evolution of this. Um, and because of course, when you talk about the EU as an empire, it's impossible not to remember the actual imperial history uh, of the European countries in, in this area. And, um, and just one thing which kind of blew my mind, although of course it shouldn't, was your simple observation that at the time the European community is formed, um, France still owns Algeria. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah so yeah. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. No, I was just going to say that um, this kind of then is worked into uh, the evolution of the, of the European community, this, uh, this imperial or colonial history. Yes, I mean, this is something that I guess most big fans of European integration, I should say, I am one of those, right, but still, with a critical, with a critical view on all of that, right, um, I think that this is one aspect that is, it tends to be forgotten, now, if you think about the fact that when the European communities were founded, Algeria was still part of France, it wasn't just a colony, let's say, it was part of France. Um, and so if you start looking back and the, uh, look at the way in which the relationship between, um, between the European colonial powers and the colonies or 
occupied <laughs> uh, countries, um, how that developed, there is a certain continuity because, of course, there were imperial relations between the single member states, most notably uh, France, but and then also Italy to a certain extent, uh, Spain that became later a member, um, Great Britain that also became a member of the European communities later on. But there is a certain continuity in the way that trade relations have been conducted. There has always been a sort of, um, well, core periphery relations, first of all. Um, there has always been a division of labor, who exports what to whom and who gets what in return, right? Which is very typical of core periphery relations. Um, and then, so if you look at, at the way in which the European policies then developed, uh, once it was the European communities and when it became the European Union, um, you see a certain continuity. It's, it's as, if, as if colonial policies of um, the original member states, of some of the original member states, were basically, let's say, Europeanized, right? And of course, this is something that, again, most, um, most uh, fans of, European, of the European integration process will not so easily admit, right? But I mean, if you really look, and I think that that's also one of the reasons why I think that looking at the, at the relationship between Europe and its, uh, let's say, southern borderlands, through this borderlands approach is so useful because you can really also go back and look at colonial history and uh, try to, to see what has remained from that, whether it has developed, whether there is a continuity or not, right? And, um, and so I think that in, in, in some respects, uh, the European Union, it's, it's somehow part, I mean, also if you go back and read really the history um, of the European communities vis-a-vis -vis the ideas that they had vis-a-vis -vis, uh, North Africa and the Middle East or the world in general, um, it's, it's a clear uh, colonial idea, right? And so um, in a way that this whole, that there are some issues that are really part of the European Union's DNA, I would say, right. um, this whole idea how to deal with Africa back then, right? There was this whole project about uh, Eurafrica um, in the 1930s and 1940s, and, and, and Pio Hansen and, um, um, has written a great book about that. So that's, that's the part of the, of the collective amnesia, let's say, that uh, the Europeans have engaged in. Um, of course, collective amnesia, amnesia is, not, um, uh, is not a characteristic only of the Europeans, right, right with regards right. Their, their history. But it, but it really is quite, uh, quite evocative. Uh, the idea of the Mediterranean as a natural border kind of looks different when you think, when you think about Algeria being legally part of France. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, when, so let's bring this up then, uh, maybe more towards uh, uh, the present day. And you, and you trace the, uh, the evolution of EU policy towards the Mediterranean MENA states. Um, and one thing which jumped out at me, which again, I hadn't really thought of before, was the indirect impact of the 2004 EU enlargement and what that kind of meant for these other relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of this, the broader trajectory of this expansion of borders? Mm -hmm. So within, in 2004, there was the big bang enlargement of the European Union because 10 um, states became new members. Um, most of them in Eastern Europe, some of them also in the Mediterranean, because when uh, in 1995 the Barcelona process started, Malta and Cyprus, for example, they were part of the Mediterranean partner countries, let's say, because they were not members of the European Union. And so in 2004, there was this big bang enlargement. 
And it basically meant that uh, for the European Union, the capacity to absorb new members was obviously completely limited now. Would not, there would not be um, new um, the, 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 the acceptance of new members in the foreseeable or near future because integrating 10 new member states was quite a, a big deal, right? Yes. So the European Union basically thought about a new policy, what to do now with the neighbours with the new neighbors, particularly the new neighbors in the East, right? Um, those that would not become members anytime soon and that somehow something had to be offered to them. So the European Union basically came up with a neighborhood policy, the European neighborhood policy and offered everything but institutions. So basically said, okay, you can become part of the internal market. We will have <clears throat> very, very uh, strong ties. You can... Um, uh, become part of different programs and projects that were, are so far only open to member states, but you will not become part of the political institutions. You will not have, let's say, voting rights, right? We, we will not be part of the political management of the European Union. And then they somehow discovered that, well, there was also North Africa and the Middle East, which were not really new members, but still, uh, so, sorry, not new, uh, new neighbors, but still neighbors. So that policy was also adopted to... North Africa and the Middle East. And it was basically the idea to say, okay, we're going to have a policy that is going to be based on bilateral relations. It's going to be based on the, in, the mutual interests and we can advance the relationship according to what we agree on. So a very differentiated way, uh, differentiated, differentiated type of policy. And that became the main template, let's say, of the European Union's policy towards North Africa and the Middle East. Of course, before that, it had signed different free trade agreements with, um, the mem with most of the states in North Africa and the Middle East, which remain the legal basis of the relationship between the EU and, and these states. And so this whole idea of basically saying, okay, we can give you something, you can become part of, uh, of specific aspect of the internal market, according to our mutual interests, but of course you have to adopt our rules, right? So this became this, I, I would argue that this idea of, of sort of empire became much stronger with the 2004 enlargement. It also changed the way that the European Union looked at itself because all of a sudden it said, hmm, we are actually rather large. You know, we have a, a lot of, of, of citizens in the European Union. We have to play a role in world politics, right? And we have to engage in specific relations with our neighborhoods. So this is more or less what, what has happened what has happened in 2004 and the neighborhood policy has remained this main template and has basically established how should I say how should I say a sort of a patchwork um, type of relationship, uh, sort of a hub and spoke type of relationship which is very differentiated. So as I was saying before, uh, some countries are part of specific programs of the European Union, um, others are not. Um, Israel is part of the research and development program. Um, Morocco and, and Tunisia are part of the open sky and so on and so forth. So you have very different types of bilateral um, relations. Now, when you, when you look at the scope and the impact of those relations and, uh, and of these policies, you know, I could imagine uh, someone who, as you would put it, is a fan of the European project, 
you know, taking this framework and saying, yes, this is an example of Europe as a normative power, but your take is quite critical of the impact on both democracy and on economic outcomes. Yes, absolutely. I think that the European, particularly in Europe, I mean, the European Union studies literature and the idea of normative power has been quite dominant in recent uh, decades. Whereas in the United States, you know, the idea that the European Union doesn't, or the Europeans don't matter in the Middle East is, is rather prevalent, right? Um, but I think we have to be much more critical because what we see is, is that actually the European Union, yes, it has been exporting some rules, but these are not the big norms. It's not about democracy and, and liberty and human rights. It is about this nitty gritty little rules and practices that you need to do in order to be part of the uh, of the internal market, in order to have trade relations, in order to access to specific programs and projects of the European Union. I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, really becoming a full member of the European Union and of the internal market means basically that you have to adopt 130,000 pages of the so-called acquis communautaire. That's not what the states in North Africa and the Middle East have to do, but they have, if they want to be, become part, uh, benefit from specific funds, become part of specific programs, they have to abide by European rules. So in a way, we can say, yes, I mean, the European Union is normative in the sense that it it's, it's trying to export its order to the neighborhood. But it is not a normative actor in world politics, because what really matters are economic interests, security interests, and, and the stability of the so-called um, neighborhood. And what we have seen, basically, I mean, if we're talking about the impact of European policies, well, there are specific results. It is true that over the, the 20 years that um, the book examined, it is true that trade in industrial goods, for example, um, as regards trade in industrial goods, yes, MENA economies have been integrated into various aspects of the EU's internal um, market. As I said before, agriculture, however, is excluded, right? And if we're thinking about who has been driving this process, well, it's Perhaps unsurprisingly, the EU institutions, large European companies, uh, single EU member states, and MENA elites. And these are the actors that have benefited most from this, uh, from this arrangement. And for, if we're looking at European policies on migration and security and border controls, well, it's a very similar picture. And in fact, it's a scandalous one. Because what we see here is a plethora of very shady agreements in which MENA governments many of them with a despicable human rights record, do the dirty work of blocking unwanted migrants to, to Europe by violating human rights. And Libya here is the most appalling example, right? And the same goes for the cooperation on security and, um, and counter-terrorism. So whenever the issue of democracy promotion is, is at stake, well, we see clearly what the set of priorities is. So it's not about this benevolent actor that is trying to promote uh, democracy and human rights uh, in the world and in the neighborhood. That's a very different logic. I mean, whenever there was to choose between promoting democracy and, and stability and co cooperating or co-opting um, corrupt and repressive rulers, well, it's very clear what the choice was, right? It was not about democracy promotion. And it's not, still not. 
But then on the other side of the supposed bargain, uh, you're also very critical of the effects uh, on, on the economy, especially on inequality and uh, crony capitalism and the like. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's of course, it's very difficult to say the Europeans are to blame for everything, right? I mean, it's, it's tricky because... Um, uh, because, of course, the, the European Union and the European member states, they are part of a specific global economic order, and they're not the only ones who have been promoting uh, the neoliberal development model in the region, right? And they're not the only ones who cooperate with these states on, on counterterrorism. But I think what is important to keep in mind is that the EU uh, remains the largest trading partner of all of these states, right? And so what I can say is basically that, yes, I mean, if we look at the 20 years that, that the book has examined, we can say, yes, the overall, overall trade volume has increased. But what is also true is that the commercial relations have continued to be asymmetrical. So there's still the same division of labor and the specialization in different types of products, with the exception of, of Israel and with the exception of Turkey to a certain extent, right? But it's this very specific type of relations, of trade relations, that is very typical of core periphery relations. And Europe has consistently recorded a trade surplus with most member states. I mean, exception again here are the hydrocarbon exporting countries. And what we can also see is that European companies have benefited from this process. And in all this picture, what we have also seen is that authoritarian regimes, now they have basically hijacked this neoliberal restructuring process to their advantage, also because the Europeans have not um, pushed for, for any meaningful political reforms in these states as regards the rule of law or accountability. And so what we have seen that in these 20 years, crony capitalism, corruption, have increased massively in the MENA region, um, together with uh, social economic inequalities, which have increased as well. And what we can say is that the Europeans, as, as anyone else basically, have de facto tolerated and also partly contributed to this accumulation of power and, and private wealth by repressive uh, rulers in, in the Middle East and North Africa. And just to give a very quick example, if you're thinking about Egypt under Mubarak, Mubarak and Tunisia under Ben Ali. So these two countries until, well, as long as Mubarak and, and Ben Ali were, were in power, these two countries were praised by the European Union as opposed to children of economic development. But that also meant that in Egypt, at, at that, I mean, before uh, the uprisings, around 30 businessmen controlled mm. around 500 firms, right? Mm. Um, Tunisia, uh, in Tunisia, the assets of Ben Ali and, um, and his extended family accounted for one quarter of Tunisia's GDP in 2011. That's when the assets of Ben Ali and his cronies were expropriated in the wake of the, of the uprisings. And we can also, if we, again, if we look at, um, at uh, the cooperation on counterterrorism and migration, well, again, the Europeans have accepted the increasingly repressive policies that MENA uh, governments have adopted towards their citizens, towards foreign migrants, towards refugees. And not only this, European states have, in fact, how can we say, they have rewarded these states with political support and massive financial, technical, and material aid. And this aid includes 
the training of the police and then the border guards, uh, donation or sales of, of petrol boats and of sophisticated surveillance equipment. And again, the European arms industry has profited massively here. So, so yes, I think we can say that European policies have um, contributed to the strengthening of authoritarian regimes while ignoring human rights violations, corruption and rising inequalities. And as I said, is Europe alone to blame for that? No, probably not, right? Um, we should also not forget MENA elites in, in all the picture because they have profited from this state of affairs. But in a way, we can also say that the Europeans should have known better because scholars and observers and many of them knowing very well the Middle East, they have been saying the same things for the last 20 years, right? And there is even an EU-funded study of 2007 that said this type of economic development, this type of trade relations is negative unless there are mitigating policies to, I don't know, alleviate poverty and so on and so forth. Well, this, is, this has been really interesting. And it's a very, a very rich and thoughtful book, Borderlands, Europe and the Mediterranean Middle East. Uh, Raffaella, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Lucia Ardovini who, of the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and the author of a new article on the Muslim Brotherhood and the co-editor of a special issue on the Muslim Brotherhood that appeared in uh, Middle East Law and Governance. Uh, Lucia, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we get to your article, could you tell us about the broader special issue and the project that it was based on? Yes, yeah, sure. So the special issue is uh, it was born out of um, a bigger research collaboration between me and my co-editor, who is Dr. Erika Biagini at Dublin City University. And me and Erika met in 2018, realized that we were essentially looking at very similar themes. Like both of us wanted to look into how the Brotherhood is changing after 2013 and looking at it from the perspective of really the individual members, really wanting to showcase personal experiences and emotions and perceptions, rather than looking at the movement as a whole monolithic unit. So what we try to do with the special issue is just that. So essentially tracing, you know, trajectories of continuity and change after the coup and bringing together some really good uh, early career scholars and some more established scholars to really try to trace it across all of the different themes that people usually look at when they look at the Brotherhood. So we have articles that are looking at the dimension of violence and radicalization. Uh, what I do with my own article is I look at how the Tanzim and the relationship between the movement and its members are changing. Erica looks at the dimension of gender and the Muslim sisterhood. So we really have a lot in there that essentially covers a part of scholarship that had been missing so far because these events are quite recent. And I think that if I say so myself, I think that we managed to do it quite well in terms of covering all of these bases. It's really fantastic. It's not just individually good articles, but also it's a very cohesive special issue, which, which you don't always necessarily get. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, it's it's been it's been a lot, uh, but I think we we can say that we're pretty satisfied with with the results. So let's talk about your article specifically and this tension between uh, the Tanzim, the organization, and its individual members. Yes. So I think what I should say before I start is that 
the what really brought me to write this article was looking at my 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 own primary data and my own ethnography and obviously once you go into the field you never quite know what what you're going to find obviously you have an idea but it's uh, i feel like a lot of it it's like the direction of it is very much uh driven by the contributions and the people that you speak to so i spent a lot about that real quickly like who, like the, your interviews yeah, so I started working on this particular project, which is going to be a book coming out in um, January with Manchester University Press in 2013. Uh, and what this was originally my PhD. Uh, and I, throughout the years, I conducted over 100 interviews with both current and former members of the Brotherhood, mostly living in the diaspora. So I'm mostly looking at the dimension of exile. And I've been able to speak. Uh, repeatedly and really form connections with members mostly in Turkey and in the UK, which is where a lot of them relocated after 2013. And what has been very interesting from this data is that I could really see people's perceptions change throughout the years. And something that became very striking to me was just how much this dimension of exile and this renewed wave of repression is changing people's attitudes, not just towards the movement, but also towards what the movement stands for. So this is where I really started looking into, you know, this idea of individual agency and how that's reshaping the Tanzim directly as a result of the actions that members will choose to stay in the brotherhood they're taking. You make two kind of different um, cuts into this problem. One is that these um, tensions have always been there uh, historically, but also there are really some new things going on after 2013 with the coup and exile. So can you like, walk us through a bit about the changes in how individual members have related to the organization? Yes, I mean, as you said, this is nothing new. I haven't gone and discovered uh, hot water. Uh, I mean, tensions between just how hierarchical and fixed the organization is and its members' desires have always been there. But I think that what really changed after 2013 is that the current wave of repression that the movement and its members are facing, it's drastically different from all the other sort of repressions that the movement has faced so far, the dimension of exile being one of the main drivers of this change. And what I think is very significant here is that, that the membership is incredibly fragmented. And I think that there are two clear groups that we can identify here. There are those who are fully committed to the survival of the organization and they're willing to do anything that it takes for the organization to, to remain what it is. And then there are those who want to take it a step further. They don't only want the brotherhood to survive, but they want the brotherhood to like change and thrive and adapt to its new circumstances. And this is where we see a lot of internal change or a lot of pushes for internal change that are coming out. Now, the forces of stagnation, as you call them, here you're talking about the traditional leadership and uh, those that are really just, you know, they, they feel like they've been through this before. Yes, they have. And I mean, I think something that is important to, to remember is that what's happening now in terms of division and forces is not just uh, something that is happening across generational lines, but the historical leadership and those who remain faithful to them indeed 
uh, embody what I call the, the stagnation camp. And these are, you know, the people who have been in the organization for their entire lives. They've been, you know, subjected to a lot of different waves of repression. They've been in jail under Mubarak and so on. So they're really committed to this idea of mihna, if you want, this idea that this is just another trial. This is just another... Uh, time of hardship and if anything this is something that should bring the organization and its members together but on the other side we see that that is not necessarily the something that stands anymore although it did in the past and then and then on the other side when you're looking at the the adaptation group um you're looking at people who they really do have a lot of reasons to question uh the the choices made by their leadership Yes, exactly. And these are the people who I think very much are pushing for the organization to change in order to adapt to these new circumstances. And this is something that it's also new in the sense that repression has historically brought the organization and its members together. But what we're seeing now are very much a lot of calls for renewal and also a lot of calls for um, individual agency and greater space for personal development and so on, which is always which have always been stifled within the movement. And what I think is very significant about those who belong within the adaptation camp is that very often they don't agree with each other. Right. Like they have very different ideas of what the organization should do in order to, you know, survive repression and challenge the regime and so on. But they all exhibit a lot of common traits. And one of these traits that I look at in the article is the willingness to, you know, don't just listen and obey anymore. It's like, okay, the historical leadership is as this, you know, overarching official narrative, but I'm not gonna stand for it. I am still a member of this movement, but I am gonna do what I think it's necessary in order for us to move forward. And that is something that is very, much pushing for internal renewal. And this is also something that, you know, the historical leadership is very much trying to cover up in a way. But I think that anyone who looks at the Brotherhood can see that these forces are there. Now, one of the interesting arguments that you make is that, you know, this this top-down hierarchy isn't just reinforced by, you know, by discipline and control, but it actually also rests on this formation of a collective identity, which is reinforced through socialization and, and you know, maybe indoctrination, whatever word you want to use for it. Mm-hmm. And what, and, but that kind of breaks down once you go into exile. Yes, exactly. Because when we're looking at organizations like the, like the Muslim Brotherhood, as you were saying, like socialization, even biological bonds and emotional bonds are really what contributes to creating a very strong collective identity. However, once you're put into a dimension of exile, that made a lot of people realize for the first time that they're not just Hijuanis, they're not just brothers, they're also Egyptians, they're also you know, fathers and husbands. And that kind of brought into the picture a lot of different needs and a lot of different questions that for some people take priority over their just being a pious member of the movement. 
One thing which is you know very interesting psychologically, and there have been a few people who've looked at it, but uh, but it's still it's I think it's hard to un fully grasp or to fully understand is the relationship between the trauma that they experienced mm -hmm. uh, against what you describe as this creative opening to new ideas. And to walk us through that a little bit and how you see people balancing uh, those two things. Yes, I think, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I think that you, you're right on, on the money there, like trauma and especially the fact that this wave of repression is targeting members and supporters of the organization all together, not just the leaders, really made a lot of people realize that things need to change. And, and what I mean by that is that that has kind of broken down a lot of truths and a lot of like core principles that were not usually questioned or were not questioned to the extent in which they are now. Obviously, when you go through a very quick politicization process, there are issues, but when this politicization process arguably fails, that raises a lot of questions about, you know, ideology and the Islamist project as a whole, mm -hmm. which then in turn kind of trickles down into the way in which the, the movement in itself is run. So I think that this, but this is also something that I shouldn't, it does not happen overnight, you know, like, as I was saying at the beginning, I've been talking to a lot of these people for years and I've really been able to see their perception change over time. Like in the first couple of years following the coup, the main priority that everyone or most people had was you know, settling into this dimension of exile, like building a diaspora that was not there before. And once, which is traumatic in itself. And once you kind of settle into that, then you start asking yourself questions about who you want to be. So who are you outside of this movement? Who are you outside of Egypt? And this is where really all those forces and those dynamics are coming from, I think. So, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, the, your article, the special issue, your forthcoming book, um, what do you think the big uh, takeaway is for people who study Islamist movements or the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood specifically? You know, where would you like to see research on this area go? This is a very important question. I think for all of us who look at Islamist movements, we need to make the scholarship reflect the fact that the circumstances of a lot of these movements have changed. You know, we spent so much time prior to 2011 looking at Islamist movements as mostly semi-tolerated, semi-legal political parties, political organizations, somewhat part of governments and so on. But the context in which these movements operate is now drastically different. And I think that this is something that we need to, we need to break down the categories that we have used so far. And I think that something that is very important in doing that, uh, which we do in the special issue, is very much look at the relationship that this movement had with their members and specifically focus on the members themselves. How do the members' desires, subjectivities, experiences, perceptions shape all of the aspects that these movements put forward from ideology to political projects to, you know, preaching and so on. This is something that, that people have done, but I would argue that there is really room to expand on that. And this is where I would personally like to see research going.
I mean, in and of itself, that challenges some of the uh, the kind of cultural or popular stereotypes about the Brotherhood, that they're just a bunch of indoctrinated robots or drones. Yeah. Um, and so simply by bringing out their agency and, and their struggles, it's implicitly challenging those narratives. Exactly. And I also, something else that has changed as well, um, it's also the way in which these movements and especially their members like relate to researchers as well. Like the, the Brotherhood for a very long time had a few, you know, unofficially designated spokespeople. They were the ones that usually were very accessible to researchers. Mm -hmm. And something that I found, you know, working with, with brothers, current and former members since 2013, is that people are increasingly willing to talk to researchers and this is something that goes against you know hierarchies in itself but I think it's also something that it's fundamental for members themselves to sort of reflect on their own positionalities and their own subjectivities like dialogue not just with researchers but also you know with other members of the oppositions and other members of the diaspora it's definitely something that is taking that is becoming more common and that in itself i think is going to bring a lot of change well great thanks we've been speaking to lucia ardivini of uh, the swedish institute of international affairs uh thank you so much for taking the time thank you thank you for having me This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined today by Toby Dodd of the London School of Economics uh, to talk about the upcoming election in Iraq scheduled for October 9th. Toby, thank you for joining us. Thank you. October 10th, I think. October 10th. Um, so why don't we start, if you could just give us a little bit of background about, uh, about the context of the election and uh, what we might expect. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. And thanks for having me on today. I, I really appreciate it. I think the big thing uh, to, to think about is this is the um, the sixth election since regime change in 2003. There were two in 2005, 10, 2015, 2018, and now 2021. This election is really interesting because it's become early, as people may well know that there were mass demonstrations in October 2019 across South and Central Iraq, driven forward by the youth of the country now because of the demographic bulge, the, the, the mass mm -hmm. of the population, uh, expressing their deep frustration and anger, not only with uh, economic problems, but with the corruption and the lack of representativeness of the political system. So these elections were brought forward and they were they're being held under a, a new electoral law in theory, at least, in an attempt to make them more representative, to meet some of the protesters' demands and to meet the widespread alienation of the wider population beyond the youth and the, and the protesters. What we've seen is a steady decline in electoral turnout and more and more anger about um, electoral fixing, electoral fraud as the elections have, have moved on. So the, the big issue, and I, I can tell you, the, I don't think the answer is a surprise, but the big issue is, will the change in this election, will the electoral system and their early calling and some degree of um, international oversight of them deliver meaningful change? So that's the big issue to look out for. Can you tell us a little bit about the new electoral system? Uh, what, what's the difference uh, in, between this and earlier elections and why would it be expected to, to bring about any changes? 
Yeah, excellent. I, I, the first thing to, to say is that as far as I can see that uh, Iraq's national elections have been held under a different electoral law uh, with uh, closed lists, open lists, and but they've always had a list system. And so this is now a shift uh, to directly elected members of parliament in, in the hope that those, because um, when you're voting, you're voting in a, in a first past the post system in each constituency for someone who you know, who you know the name of. Therefore, the hope is that they'll be more responsive, more engaged with uh, a delineated uh, constituency of voters. And have we seen that playing out? Have we seen that kind of electoral campaign? No, I, I think um, if you were to look at it strategically, uh, the electoral system favours those with nationwide organization, organising capacity with money and networks. And so I think this is basically, and we can get to reasons why, a status quo election. The powers that be, the big old dominant parties and their militias, those that have been responsible for creating the system in 2005, for the civil war that Iraq slipped into, and a lot of the targeted violence that's going on now will continue to dominate the system after the election. So I don't think there are many people, or in fact, any Iraq analyst or analysts of Iraq who, who, who forecast major changes in the aftermath of this election. Well, let's, let's talk about that campaign of violence a little bit. And more broadly, um, you know, kind of how do these protesting youth feel about this election? Uh, there's been talk of a boycott. Uh, there seems to be widespread apathy and alienation. Um, so how, what, what has been the reception of, of the election as we're moving towards the election day? Sure. I, I think it would be hard to overstate the Tishreen movement, the October Revolution, as it's called by its participants, this mass wave in 2019 of street demonstrations, certainly in Baghdad, but in, in most urban conurbations across the centre and the south of the country. Now, keep in mind, if we want to talk in religious terms, the people demonstrating were the majority uh, Shia population, they were demonstrating against those parties that claimed to represent them. So right. I think that was a mass move away from uh, religious sectarian justification for the political uh, system. And those demonstrators were, ar uh, were arguing, protesting overtly for a secular citizenship-based electoral system. So that's, that's potentially revolutionary. Uh, over 600 of those demonstrators were killed in attempts to control and suppress those demonstrations. But I think much, much more sinisterly, uh, ever since you've had a campaign of targeted assassinations with democratic activists and liberal journalists being assassinated quite often in or near their homes in Baghdad and across the south of Iraq. Now, what this means, I would argue, and I think there's very little controversy about this, is, is wings of the Iranian-aligned militias are using targeted assassinations with the overt strategic aim of breaking uh, the protest movement and, and uh, making sure it has little or no effect in the elections and uh, doesn't pose a threat to the continuation of the system. And I think that's exactly what's happened. Uh, the, 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 the youthful, liberal, uh, citizenship-based parties who were demanding elections, who were coming out to demonstrate they've lost so many of their activists to assassinations, there is now a widespread, uh, almost uniform boycott amongst those people trying to represent their October Revolution, the Tishreen movement, saying, well, we don't believe 
these elections are going to change anything. Uh, it's simply too violent and too dangerous to take part. Now, that's one section, that active, mm-hmm. internet-savvy uh, boycott movement. There's another wider group of uh, people who just say, why should we vote? It's not going to change the system. Corruption is ingrained. The system is defended by violence. Uh, we're just not going to turn out. So you've got an active boycott movement, but what we could possibly describe as a passive, demotivated, alienated, wider population who are not voting, are also making a political statement. Voting is not going to change anything, but it's not the kind of activist statement of the groups involved in Tishreen. Let's talk about the about Muqtada Asadar and the Sadarist movement. They were out of the election. Uh, now they're back in. Uh, you recently published a very interesting paper about how uh, Sadr and his people uh, were kind of embedded within the state and had been able to extract a significant amount of state resources um, from from that position. So what what is Sadr's game in all of this uh, now that we're you know heading towards this new election? That's a great question. And I think also if, if we look at Iraq from 2003 onwards, I, I, I can't remember an election that Sadr hasn't at some stage threatened to or boycott. And when he boycotted this, I thought it was a theatrical position to maximize his momentum when he finally rejoined. The right. paper that I published with Renad Mansour through Chatham House is a look at how... Uh, the civil service in Iraq has been politicized through these private grades. These are uh, civil service grades above uh, the, the, the structured civil service. They've been colonized and shared by the political parties as part of a consociational system. So uh, the, the, you have governments of national unity, which from 2005 onwards divided ministerial uh, jobs amongst the, the victorious parties. But this was then slowly pushed down. So the private grades, the senior civil servants, well paid at the top of each ministry, then became also the, 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 the pawns, the currency of ne- electoral negotiation. So if you go into any ministry now, uh, the, the, the very top rank of the civil servants, intriguingly, those who sign the contracts, who control the money flow, those who have the... Uh, the, the best access to raking off money from government budgets for uh, their parties are now party political actors. And what happened in 2018 to add to this, those private grades, those political appointed civil servants were then once more promoted again into government ministerial positions. So what we see is the, uh, the complete politicization of the senior civil service and then into cabinet um, in the name of a kind of informal Consociationalism. Now, what's fascinating about Sadr and the Sadrist movement is there are key ministries that he has had for, for, for a long time, uh, personified by uh, the Sadrist domination of the Ministry of Health. But there's been another dynamic that he's used his muscle, his political leverage to then expand his power state. Uh, his, his power base, and there's there's very good evidence that he's done that in the Ministry of Electricity, one of the highest spending ministries in the Iraqi government that isn't security. And also, what makes this even more intriguing is the current incumbent Prime Minister, Mustafa Al-Khadami, has clearly overtly been courting Muqtad al-Sadr in the hope that a Sadrist vote in Parliament would see him re-elected as Prime Minister. And there's good evidence that he's been favouring senior Sadrist operatives 
in uh, senior government appointments, in, in, uh, in the bureaus and the, the cross-government institutions, and even there's evidence about these, that recently of him ceding the intelligence service that he used to run with Sutterist uh, appointments as well. So we used to talk, or Iraq analysts used to talk about the deep state in Iraq, and they tied that to that the Dawa party in the reign of Nuri al-Maliki. Now, in popular discourse, in Baghdad especially, you're talking about the deep state being dominated by Sadr, this kind of parallel set of institutions which gives him civil service, kind of an unseen power across the state, but also the power to extract a great deal of money from uh, state budgets. And the Ministry of Health in a series of fires and scandals in a poorly functioning ministry is obviously is, um, um, is often blamed on the Sutterist domination of that ministry. Now you mentioned uh, uh, consociationalism, and you know it, it draws to mind. Uh, we had a POMEPS workshop uh, with uh, uh, Basil Salouk that you were involved with, and then a special issue that you were involved with, kind of comparing Iraqi and Lebanese consociationalism. And it, it's hard to not notice how both Iraq and Lebanon have produced this, you know, this political stagnation and mass popular alienation and resistance to change. Um, you know, what do you think about this, like in comparative context, and what does it tell us about the nature of the state that formed in Iraq after two thousand three? That's a great question, and, and Basil's work. I've collaborated with Basil a lot on on on, on developing a comparative framework. Uh, Basil's very taken with this notion, of the, the Gramscian notion of the integral state. Uh, I've been looking at um, uh, both Pierre Bourdieu's understanding of the state, but now moving through to uh, Michael Mann's work on, on the disaggregated state. So from that point of view, I think the comparison is both very intriguing, but very worrying. So obviously we know uh, from the Taif Accords onwards, the Lebanese state uh, was divided in, in an, in, allegedly in the name of communal harmony between the key elites that claim to represent the different sections of, of uh, Lebanese society, different religious sections. Uh, that model, uh, uh, what's been called in the literature an informal consociationism, is clearly at work in Iraq at least since 2005, where uh, ministries are divided, civil servants are divided, and, and uh, in, in the name of communal harmony. Now, as we've seen in Lebanon, as, and as we are seeing in Iraq, this has an incredibly corrosive and destructive uh, effect on the state. This, this uh, divvying up of state budgets, of personnel, this dividing indeed of senior army positions uh, in the name of, of, of ethno-sectarianism uh, gives a free reign to politically sanctioned corruption, it breaks the coherence and the independent of state, uh, independence of state institutions, and it impoverishes the services delivered to the population. And famously, uh, uh, there's an incredibly poor delivery of electricity, uh, fresh running water, housing, health services across Iraq, which is, unlike Lebanon, an oil-rich state. So there's a, a lot of money simply gone to the parties in politically sanctioned corruption, which directly affects the state's coherence and its ability to deliver to its population. Now, when, when people look at triggers of instability, elections are often things which can trigger, especially elections that don't produce uh, the desired outcome. Do you see any possibility that uh, this election could lead to a resurgence of the Tashreen movement, or do you think they're unrelated? That's, I mean, there, there are, there are 
two ways this election could trigger instability. And one is within the ruling elite and one is the opposition to the ruling elite. So the Tishreen movement um, was clearly born of the aftermath of the 2018 elections and, and a sense amongst the young protesters that the status quo was simply reproduced. And Adel Abdel Mahdi, the, um, the prime minister who was appointed after 2018, was simply a status quo character. Now, we could, and that, I mean, there'll be either an incumbent prime minister or a completely new prime minister uh, after these coming up and coming elections, but I am sure these elections will be a status quo. It'll be an elite pact where the spoils are divided between the dominant parties. So will that trigger a new street protest? Well, the answer is, 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 is certainly it might. But of course, what we saw in the aftermath of the Tishreen movement was two deployments of violence. The first was deployment of violence by state actors, uh, the riot police, the army. A lot of Tishreeni uh, demonstrators were killed through headshots, uh, shots to the chest from snipers, clearly state sanctioned and almost certainly state performed. And then even more were grievously wounded by having tear gas canisters fired at them uh, by state forces trying to control the demonstrations. So, and after that, as, as we've discussed, um, you have then this militia-driven campaign of assassination. Now, that those two levels of violence, one wholesale, targeting all the demonstrators, and one retail and focused with real-time intelligence on individual, senior, effective, um, influential um, opposition activists means that there's been an attrition, a, a war of attrition almost directed against the demonstrators, uh, targeting those who are organizing, and that's bound to have a fracturing, demobilizing, uh, scary, intimidating effect. So uh, if the demonstrators come, come back, they know exactly what they'll face, and they'll be coming back with a new set of activists to replace the ones that have been, the, the thousands that have been driven into exile and the hundreds that have been murdered. The second trigger of potential instability is negotiations within the ruling elite. Mm -hmm. So the, the, as I said, the, 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 what could be called the Sudderist deep state, the move from Sudder to maximize his leverage through elections and, and then colonize institutions of the state, obviously will create a, a counter move uh, against him, uh, again by Shia Islamist um, political parties, to try and stop that going. Now, in the past, that's been a political counter move, but it's also been accompanied with uh, covert violence as well. That could happen again. Because violence, targeted assassinations, because violence has become a political currency in Iraq since the Tishreen movement, you could see that currency being deployed not only outside the ruling elite, but internal to the ruling elite to gain political advantage in the struggle for greater domination of the state. Well, we've been speaking with Toby Dodge of LSE about the upcoming Iraqi election. Uh, Toby, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Keep up the good work.